0: Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. The book of Hebrews is a written sermon to a church that's likely in Rome. We don't know that for sure, but some of the clues point to this church, this Hebrew Christian church, likely being in Rome. They had been running the faith really well. As you're turning there, I'm going to share a couple of passages with you just for the sake of context. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 the Hebrews preacher writes to his church, And he says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Remember those days, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Remember when you ran the race well, Hebrews Church. The situation in this church as they're receiving this letter is that they had been running the race well, but this Hebrews preacher encourages them in the next couple verses with what's really going on. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Don't bail on this thing because it's gotten hard. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This pastor is urging his people to continue and not give up the journey following Christ. Now we've been in Hebrews for the last couple of years and I've asked myself over and over again, why are we in Hebrews? Do I see us collectively as a church on the bubble about to bail on Christ? No, I don't. But having been in the ministry here in Greenville 11 years, I have seen families and people bail on Christ. And whether you realize it or not, we're living in a community that is filled with people who effectively have bailed on Christ. For if you bail on His church... You could make the argument a very strong and safe argument from God's word that you have also built on him. That there is no salvation apart from the church. That's a hard truth, especially in our context, but it should galvanize us as we realize that any of us could potentially fall away. The folks that I've seen fall away in the 11, last 11 years, I'm not talking about people moving to another church. I'm talking about people walking out on the church altogether or completely renouncing their faith altogether. In a lot of cases, I'm talking about people that you would have never expected would do such a thing. It's happened before, and I promise you, it will happen again. And the sad, sober reality, before we continue with this galvanizing message this morning, is the likelihood is that some of you will bail on the race and the faith Before the end of your life. So we need this galvanizing message. We may not be like the believers in Laos who are facing persecution with potentially an entire church bailing on the faith. Or the Hebrews church potentially bailing on the faith. But we sure have those families or we have those pockets or we have those individuals that are ever more on the bubble. So this message is for us. Let me read this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 and then we'll climb in. We're going to look at the first three verses this morning again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured the cross, Opposition from sinners such hostility I'm, I'm thinking the New American Standard where I memorized this considered him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted last week we considered these very same passages for the first time it's a continued encouragement from the end of chapter 10 and here he's not only encouraging them to continue but here he's telling them how to continue what to do as you're continuing, and how to continue. First of all, we considered last week that they should run with others in view. Realize that the amphitheater is full of a host of witnesses, faithful witnesses that have gone before us, that are cheering for us. The stands are full as we run the race. And secondly, we considered last week is that we are to lay aside heavy stuff, both the distracting stuff that makes it hard to run the race and the pure de-sinful stuff that just makes it hard to continue the race of faith. But the third thing we considered last week, and where we're really going to sort of hunker down this morning, is run with your eyes fixed on and considering Jesus. He's what the Hebrews church should have been looking to as they were to continue with Christ in Rome. And he's what the church in Greenville, with folks from Caddo, from Lono, from Commerce... From fate, he's what we must continue to look at so that we don't quit running ourselves. This week we're going to develop this looking to Christ more. Here's where those who go the distance and finish the race look. We're going to unpack three things, three wonderful things about Jesus from this passage. Some of the specifics about who he is and what he's done These three things, I'm going to tell you what they are in advance, and then we're going to consider three applications, three things that should affect our our faith as a result of taking a good, good, close look at Jesus this morning. First, we're going to consider that he's the founder of our faith. Secondly, that he's the perfecter of our faith. And third, that he's the model for our faith. First of all, the founder of our faith. This word founder in the New American Standard is how I memorized this passage years ago. Is the word in New American Standard is author of our faith. He authored it. Here it says he founded our faith. The word in just plain Greek, if you were to translate the word and not handle it contextually, the word means prince. Does anybody enjoy that? He's the prince of our faith, the author of our faith, the founder of our faith. I have a few places I'd like for you to turn this morning, and the first of those places is John chapter 6. John chapter 6, the most traumatic chapter in the Bible for Ben McGraw. If you were here years ago, you know what this chapter did to me. Jesus is the founder of our faith. There's a few passages, there's some things as you're turning to John chapter 6, there's a few things going on in John chapter 6. Let me just kind of briefly acquaint you with where we are. Jesus has just fed the multitudes, okay, with loaves and fishes. He's walked on the water and he's met the crowds, or you could say they met him looking for more food, he argues, just their bellies were full and they just want to get full again. They come seeking him out, saying, what what must we do to have eternal life? And he takes them to believe on him whom he has sent. The central teaching, the central nourishment that he is the good news. He is the message. He is the meal, so to speak. Now, embedded within this chapter are a couple of verses that wrecked my world a few years ago. If you were here, you know what I'm talking about. But here's what they are. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draw means drag. If we were to translate it directly, it would be drag. No one comes to me except that the Father who sent me draws or drags him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Another passage is really more of a reiteration in verse 65 across the page there. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him By the Father. Now, this passage, these two passages, and what develops in this this chapter give a pretty strong picture. I would say a really huge, strong picture that Father and Son working together are initiating this faith thing in whoever has faith. That God authored this thing, that God founded this thing, that Christ is the prince of this faith in you. Now, some don't fancy this kind of talk. Some don't, don't like the idea of being part of something that wasn't your idea. But I, want to, I have something for you to consider here in a moment. I'll share with you. But I want you to realize first that some didn't fancy that thought then either. For right here in this chapter, right after verse 65, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. If we're talking about an idea that's not very popular now, we're talking about an idea that wasn't very popular then. But man, there are wonderful things to consider here. But first, let me develop it for you a little bit more. In John chapter 17, if you'd like to turn there, you're welcome. But I'm just going to read a few little excerpts. This is Jesus praying the high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross. He's praying for his disciples who have followed him and then also those who would. He's praying for you in John chapter 17. It's a wonderful Wonderful chapter. But a few things he says in this chapter. Look at, consider, listen to chapter 17, verse 2. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 6 has the same message. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Verse 9 and 10 give a little more developed view of it. I'm praying for them, praying for these disciples who are sitting with me right here in this Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper. And I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. What is being developed in these passages in John chapter 10? What's being alluded to in this prayer in John chapter 17 is that our faith was his idea. The irony for me is, I grew up singing a song in church, and ironically, a church that did not agree with these sorts of views of God being the author of our faith. It's a church that I cherish still, it's a church where my parents are, a place where I grew up, and if I already attested to the fact that before John 6.44, I wouldn't have agreed with this. But come John 6.44, John 6.65, the rest of John chapter 6, John chapter 17, and other passages, I'm seeing and embracing the reality that our faith was his idea, and the song that I grew up singing, oh victory in Jesus. Those of you that have been in Baptist forevermore, you know the song. Victory in Jesus. He sought you, he bought you. With his redeeming love. We've been singing it whether we believed it or not. Singing stuff that's true whether we believed it or not. He sought us. He bought us. Faith in us was his idea. Now, I realize that may not be savory news for some. But there are other passages that give you the beauty of this reality. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you, authored it, founded it. The prince of it will be faithful to complete it. The thing that's so unsavory for so so many people I find such comfort in, knowing that he initiated this faith thing. If faith in me was his idea, then I know he's going to see it through. Amen? (laughs) What glorious news. His plans are sure. And that's something we can enjoy about Christ, God, Father, Son, and Spirit working together being the author and the founder and he is the prince of our faith this will lead us to the next point he is also the perfecter of our faith turn back to hebrews chapter 6 this is the second of i think maybe three or four verses i'm having you turn to this morning so we don't have a ton of other passages to look at hebrews chapter 6 he's the author of our faith He's the perfecter of our faith. Hebrews chapter 6, there's a section beginning in chapter 5, verse 11, that's dealing with one of the problems in the Hebrews church. And one of the reasons that they've become fragile in their faith is because they're not taking good nourishment. They've moved away from steak, meaty, heavy meaningful truth, and they've moved in the direction of milky light stuff, maybe devotional level preaching. Devotional Devotions are great, but they don't make for good sermons. Maybe they've moved away from big, heavy truths, and they're not eating solid food. And he charges them, he warns them about this and what could happen to them and what will happen to them if they're not eating solid food. But listen to what he, what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us, Hebrew church, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, there's a little section in here that I'm going to read, but I'm going to read it again with this section out so you understand what's being said here. Let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, here's why it's hard to make sense of what's being said there, because all that middle stuff. If you take that middle stuff out and you realize what he's saying, this we will do. I'm going to read it again. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And this we will do if God permits. That's what's being said right there. The Hebrews preacher is taking his church to the reality that He is the perfecter of our faith. It's not something that you do. It's something that he does in us. God is sovereign over salvation, and God is sovereign over sanctification. If you're going to grow up to maturity, that too is going to be his idea. He's going to be the one that's working those things in you. One of the beautiful things about this (laughs) is there's the potential to walk away from last Sunday... And maybe all Sundays, in some contexts, feeling like I got lots of stuff to do. And maybe even feeling overwhelmed, like, how am I going to do all this faith stuff? There's so many things I heard today that I'm supposed to be doing. Just consider last week. Last week, we grabbed some let-uses from Hebrews chapter 10. Let us draw near. Let us... Hold fast. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. If you're walking away from things like that, you're hearing some verbs that have to do with us. Let us do those things. We introduced a couple new verbs last week. Let us run the race with endurance. Let us lay aside heavy weights. Let us look to Christ. Consider Him was a commandment from last week. You walk away from week to week with tons of verbs. And there's the potential to be so overwhelmed with those verbs that you miss out on what's really going on in a passage. For here in this passage, this one three verses that we've looked at, those verbs that I just drew out for you that we're to do, run the race, lay aside, look to, consider, some of those are participles, some of them are just plain old verbs. Listen to the verbs are the alluded to verbs that our prince has been about. They are many. Actually, I'm going to consider those later. I'm going to set those aside as a treat for us later. I want to take you to the reality that we can feel overwhelmed with our verbs. I want you to couple these encouragements, these verbs, and these imperatives before we look at later what what His verbs are with the knowledge that God is the perfecter of this thing that He started. Couple all those verbs that if you were paying attention last week and you've been paying attention and likely in church, often you hear these verbs. Couple those with the reality and the comforting knowledge that he is the perfecter of this thing that he started in you. This has got to be and should be wildly satisfying for you to know that God started this thing in you and that God is going to see this thing through in you. Does anybody else find comfort in that? wildly comforting. It should result in a collective exhale. All of us together could just, I needed to hear that. He started this thing, and our prince is going to see it through. Third, as we take a good look at Christ, as we consider him together, first, he's the founder of our faith. Second, he's the perfecter of our faith. And third, he's the ultimate model for our faith. This is right after a chapter full of models. Hebrews chapter 11 is full of people that we can model and people that we should have in view enough to where we can model. But what we must consider from this passage is that he is the ultimate model. He's not just another one added to the list. For faith in that hero-saturated chapter in chapter 11, faith played out in who they were looking to. And they too were looking to the ultimate model that we are to look to. We are to consider him as the ultimate model. He's different from all the other heroes in chapter 11 because he's who they were looking at. He's the ultimate model. Let's look at some specifics about the model that he was and is in verse 2. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising his sh- or despising the shame The beauty in that little treat of a passage is that he's called his people to lay aside heavy stuff. He's called his people to lay aside encumbering things, weights that might encumber us, that just might be unnecessary things, but also sinful weights, and he takes them to the ultimate model who laid aside joy. He laid aside joy and traded it for the suffering of the cross and for the shame of the cross. F.F. Bruce described this suffering and shame. He said it was a punishment reserved for those who were deemed most unfit to live. It was a punishment for those who were subhuman. From so degrading a death, Roman citizens were exempt by ancient statute. The dignity of the Roman name would be besmirched by being brought into association with anything as vile as a cross. As you're about the work, considering last week of laying aside unnecessary things and laying aside sinful things, consider that your prince, your ultimate model, lay aside joy. Lay aside joy of being in the presence of his father, of having cherubim and seraphim singing about him every day, all day long, over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He lay that aside and instead took on the suffering and the shame Of the cross. It also says in verse 3 Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He endured extreme hostility and injustice. He was spit upon, he was insulted, he was beaten. He went from trial to trial that we could all call kangaroo courts. And yet where our Hebrews preacher wants to take them and where he should take us as model is where he's taking us today is that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our prince and our model suffered. He traded joy for suffering. Our prince and our model faced some of the most ridiculous courts and injustices ever meted out. And yet he finished his race well and he sat down the victor. This image of a seated Savior is throughout our New Testaments. You really don't see him standing again until the seals and the bowls and the trumpets of revelation begin to unfold in the judgment in the end days. You should see your Lord in your mind's eyes. You envision where he is and what he's doing as seated, for he ran the race and he's finished it. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20 says, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Ephesians 2 6 You raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You should see our model as one who finished the race perfectly and is seated and reigning and ruling as the victor. Now... The three things that we draw out of this passage, these three beautiful realities that he's the founder of our faith, he's the perfecter of our faith, and he's the ultimate model for our faith, these three things will help us in our running the race. And I want to offer three ways that they will. How looking to and considering Christ as author, perfecter, and model will help you. First of all, it will give you an appropriate view Of your faith efforts. It will give you an appropriate view of your faith efforts. Look what unfolds here in this passage. The Hebrews church is is encouraged to continue, remember those verbs, to lay aside weight and sin, and to look to Jesus, and to consider Jesus. Those are some of our verbs. Now, the time for his verbs, his many verbs in this passage that are either Clear are alluded to, he's the founder of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He sat down. He endured hostility. He set aside the joy before him. There are gobs of his verbs in these three verses. And that's the focus of this passage. Last week was very appropriate for us to consider our verbs. But if we consider our verbs apart from his verbs, we're going to have a mess on our hands. We are to see an appropriate view of our faith efforts as embedded within his verbs. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Our prince ran to completion. I'm going to share a passage with you. So go ahead and turn now. I want to hear pages. I want you to see this. You need to see this verse that I'm taking you to right now. This is three, the third of maybe four places I'm having you go this morning. And this is important that you see this. He ran to completion should be the focus of this passage. He finished the race. He seated as victor. He lay aside joy for suffering. And he lay aside glory for shame. Our efforts should be embedded within his finished work. Let me show you a guy that has done this well. Paul is a great tutor of how to grace well with his efforts or your efforts in view in light of his efforts. Here's a couple of examples. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You could say Paul's encouraging his people there the Philippians to run the race well work hard run hard but then this beautiful reality that I'm talking about is his massive verbs. Look at this next verse. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love seeing those realities next to each other because they begin to make sense for me. If you've grown up in church your whole life, or even right now, if your view of church is a bunch of to-dos or a bunch of not-to-dos, you've missed out on the reality that God is the ultimate author and founder of our faith who's actually doing those things as you do. He's the prime mover behind what you're doing. This verse does a nice job of piecing the two together. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to work. Man, some folks want to lean on, be still and know that I'm God and not do anything. Lean back a total mishandling of that passage and just sit around on flowery beds of ease saying, yeah, man, God's done it all. So I just sit back on flowery beds of ease. Be still and know that I'm God. Man, that's a gypsy, I don't know, handling of a of scripture, of truth. For we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but all the while the fuel for us as we work is that we know that He is the one who works in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. Here's another example right here in this passage, or here in this chapter. Turn to chapter 3, verse 12. Paul is talking about the resurrection of the dead. He's saying, Man, I'm pressing on to grab this thing, or I'm pursuing this resurrection from the dead, this future salvation, this reality. And in verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. You could hear him say, I'm running like I want to win the race. I'm running to finish well, I'm working and striving. You could say. You're importing some other realities into that passage. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. A way that you could say that, Paul says, I'm working to lay hold of that which has laid hold of me. Man, those verbs are welcome for me. I like to see some work and some effort involved, but I like to see it in perspective where he is the prime mover. He authored this thing in me. He is perfecting this thing in me and in you. And the means in which he is perfecting it is through your often feeble but sometimes valiant efforts to run the race and to lay aside heavy stuff as you go. Man, I love that picture, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. So don't lose heart as you run the race. The second reality, the first was it will give you an appropriate view of your faith efforts. They fit within his. Secondly, it will give you a healthier view of yourself. What you think about this for a moment. The way our self-esteem is developed... There's lots of language, lots of conversation about self-esteem, especially when we talk about kids and wanting to build self-esteem. Think about how we develop our self-esteem or our self-view. I think we're all party to this because we're human beings. The way we develop our self-esteem is that we put our hand to something and then there's a verdict, whether it's a verdict that we make or a verdict that someone else makes about how we did, and then we make a decision about who we are in regards to that thing. That plays out from week to week, day to day. Think about students. The harder you work, the likelihood the verdict will be is that you get a good grade. If you practice really hard at cross country or at playing a guitar or swimming or basketball, chances are you're going to be pretty good at what you're doing. That'll be a verdict that happens at the end of this thing. And likely you'll walk away feeling better about yourself. It makes sense. We want our children to take on some things where their performance ends in a verdict that affirms and encourages them to get out there and do some other things that will press them and challenge them. Now, in regards to faith, though, there's the potential to be morbidly focused on how you're running. There's the potential to be so focused on how you're running the race Thinking your verdict will come afterward, which is altogether different in regards to faith, that makes you at times just feel like, okay, I'm done. (laughs) I quit. I've had such a bad spell. I've had such a rough spot. I'm just out. I must not even be his. I'm just out. We're so morbidly focused on our run and our race. There is a strange and wonderful beauty in nearly forgetting yourself as you run the race a strange and wonderful beauty in nearly forgetting yourself as you run the race tim keller has a book i think the title of it is the art of self forgetfulness is that right scott something like that scott took me to this book this week and wonderful things came out of this book turn to the last next to last passage i'm going to have you turn first corinthians chapter 3 this is to me i think one of the surprise treats in this sermon preparation for me came from this passage and from Tim Keller's help 1 Corinthians chapter 3 beginning in verse 21 1 Corinthians chapter 3 beginning in verse 21 we're considering that focusing on Christ as author perfector and model will give us a healthier view of ourselves Okay, look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 beginning in verse 21. A little bit of context. The Corinthians are performance focused. And unfortunately, they're not performance focused on themselves. You know, that's not their problem. They're focused on how Apollos does and how Paul does. They're focused on two different teachers, and they kind of got in these little schools or divisions that are happening. I I like, that'd be like a you know church divisions. uh, I like Scott's preaching, or I like Brad's preaching, or I like Ben's preaching. It's ridiculous. But that's what the Corinthian Corinthian church has done. They've focused on the performance of Paul or Apollos. And here's where Paul takes this church, beginning in verse 21. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, Corinthian church. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas are the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Continue in chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me... Listen to what he says. It's beautiful. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Now, this isn't licensed. Some people take this as passage, as license to say, man, stay out of my business. Don't judge me. <laughs> That's not what's being said here. I'm going to show you what's being said here because this comes from the same guy that in the next chapter climbed all over the Corinthian church for not dealing with the guy that was guilty of some heinous sexual sin in the church. In the very next chapter, he he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? He's not against looking at each other and watching each other and helping each other in our journeys, for we are our brother's keeper in the church. Not as meddlers, but as two that are two are better than one. That's not the kind of judgment that he's dealing with here. Listen, let me continue. With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now... Paul so beautifully is taking the Corinthian church who's focused on Paul versus Apollos versus Cephas and how they're performing and how they're doing or how they preach or how they pastor, and he takes them to the reality that all they are is servants of Christ. Christ should be where they're looking. And Paul says, I don't let your assessment of me define me. I've forgotten myself. In fact, I don't let your judgment define me. It's really, it's really small. It's we. In fact, I don't even let my judgment of myself define me. For Paul, you can almost hear Paul saying, as he's saying to the Corinthian church, all things are yours and you are Christ." That Paul is saying all things are mine. I am Christ. That is my identity. Because Paul saw him. As the author and perfecter and model of his faith. Paul was so completely unfazed by criticism and praise. It's remarkable. I see this in Paul and I pine for this in me because it makes a preacher not like a robo preacher, but it makes for a preacher that's not assessing while he's preaching. Well, how am I doing? You know how often that silliness creeps into my head while I'm preaching? Not this morning, thankfully. But you know, a few weeks ago where I was talking about I felt like Miss South Carolina, Miss Teen South Carolina while I was preaching. I hope some of y'all went and looked at that video. You know what I was talking about now. Uh, not all U.S. Americans have a map. I, in the middle of preaching, in the middle of preaching, there are thoughts that come into your head. How am I doing? And uh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the little kid that, from Louisiana that, that was overweight and stuttered my whole life. Who cares? Who cares? <gasps> It's delightful to preach when you're out of the way and you've forgotten yourself. The reason Paul was unfazed by criticism or praise, and the reason he was steady, whether he had a beating in store or whether somebody wanted to worship him, is because he ran with self-forgetfulness, focused on Jesus. It left him unfazed by all that stuff. He's encouraging the Corinthian church to run with the same. All things are yours and you are Christ's. Man, what good news. Keller, in his book, this is a quote from him. He says, the reason he was able to do this because was his, his view of himself wasn't developed by the Corinthians, nor was it developed even by himself. Oh, what a treat. He didn't see sin in his life and let it define him. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you that are wrestling and losing right now. He didn't see sin in his life and let it define him. And he also didn't see accomplishment and let it define him. In so many words, he said to the Corinthians, I don't care what you think, and I don't care what I think. (gasps) Beautiful. What a beautiful reality. Man, when you run with your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, you, like Paul, are going to run steady because he's steady. <laughs> he's awesome, he's our prince, and he's unchanging. You won't be defined by a besetting sin you're struggling with or a past failure because you're clothed in his righteousness from the moment you confessed, you put on his perfections. From the moment you confessed, you are christ's all things are yours everything else in life there's performance and verdict but in the christian faith and the good news there's verdict and then there's performance you are his (laughs) oh man i needed that does anybody love that you are his not half his not mostly his you're all his Now run! It's the only thing in life where the verdict comes first. You're forgiven. You're seated already with the victor. Did you pay attention to that in Ephesians 2? Oh, man, what a corporate exhale. You're reckoned a winner. So now you go run. Man, what a treat. The third thing when you see Christ as author and perfecter, and model is that it will bring focus to your running. It will bring focus to your running. We are all in danger of putting faith in our faith. We're all in danger of riding the roller coaster of, I'm going to identify or define who I am based on how I'm doing in this Christian wall. And that's putting faith in your faith, and that's guaranteed a roller coaster ride. And here's how subtle it can be if you pursue Christ likeness, if someone were to say, Man, I'm pursuing Christ likeness, and I want that with everything in me, I want Christ likeness, you would not frown on that, and you shouldn't. It's probably well meant, well meaning, but I want you to realize that we can potentially pursue Christ likeness without pursuing Christ. We could potentially pursue running the race well, when all the while forgetting the prize at the end, the reason we're running the whole thing. We can be so focused on how we're running that we miss out on the real goal of our run. I would offer that we can want to be like Christ without pursuing Christ himself. When we have our eyes fixed on him as author, as perfecter, as model, as prince, then that's when things begin to play out. When we see him as prize, when we see him as the carrot, when we see him as the treasure, then we're hitting our stride. And then we're running in a way that's going to go the distance. I was interested in this, thinking this week, man, turn to John chapter 15. It's the last place I'm going to have you turn this morning. I was looking for Scripture in the New Testament that's encouraging us to be Christ-like. And there's really not a lot of passages that say you are to be Christ-like. There are some that paint that picture. I mean, there are some that develop that thought. One good example would be Jesus in John chapter 13, washing the disciples' feet, wash others as I have washed you. Very, very... Important example of do as I have done, be Christ-like. There's not a lot of imperatives, though, commanding you to be Christ-like. Instead, there are a number of passages. I made a list that I'm not going to share with you. I'm just going to take you to one passage. That rather than encouraging Christ-likeness, encourage you to go after Christ. And John chapter 15 just really captured it well. John chapter 15, verse 5 Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You could say that runs really well. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. For apart from me, you're not going to run, you're not going to finish the race in so many words. You could connect these two passages together. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. Abide in Christ, fruit happens. Dwell on, engage, enjoy, consider as the imperative from Hebrews chapter 12. Look to Christ, not Christ's likeness. And guess what? Christ's likeness will happen. It's the fruit hanging from the tree. And something else that's really beautiful, for some of you who are thinking about some of these heavy things that we need to lay aside that we were considering last week, these things that have owned you maybe for decades, that you're thinking, man, how could I ever lay those things aside? I want you to consider those things, but I want you to focus on Christ and know that over time, months, years, decades potentially, those things will get lighter those things will be less encumbering. Those things will not trip you up as quickly as they used to. Those things will even be easier to jettison as you pursue Christ, not Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness is a fruit of abiding in the vine. I hope you can see the slight but important difference. One pursuit is after the byproduct or symptom ...of the other pursuit. And the other pursuit seeks the source. The other pursuit seeks the author and the perfecter and our prince. As we worship, enjoy, and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ... ...we find that the ultimate model of salvation... ...becomes our mode and our means... For racing and running the race. As we consider the model, he becomes the mode of transportation as we run the race. He becomes the means for continuing the race. As we consider him, we find things are laid aside, heavy things are laid aside more readily. And as we seek and consider him, we find endurance in the race to go the distance. Seeing Jesus as author and perfecter and model of our faith gives you an appropriate view of your faith efforts. It gives you a healthier view of yourself leading to the wonderful treat of self-forgetfulness. And third, it brings focus to your running. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for this good meal. I needed this good meal, and I trust this people needed this good meal. Seeing the the faces and the recognition of deep and important and wonderfully helpful truths in a room full of runners has left me encouraged right now that you nourished us this morning. You fed us well with the ultimate meal of Jesus. As author, founder, prince, as perfecter the one who's seeing this thing through, thankfully, and has modeled that when enjoyed becomes our mode and our means. God, we love you so much and we're so thankful for our time together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.